All right. Good morning, everybody. Or good evening, good afternoon. Again, if you're out there online, wherever and whenever you're joining us, um, thank you for joining us. Um, I have two things before I get started on the actual message that I want to bring to your attention. Number one, who's tired of staying on lockdown and staying with everything's unusual and you can't go to certain places, you can't go here, you can't go there? I am so over it. I'm over it. Even the government is over it because we're starting to loosen restrictions and we're starting to get back to normal. But here's, here's what I want to bring up, and it's more of a challenge to you out there online, uh, but also to some of you who are in here. Um, it matters that we come together in person. It matters. And I know that we get out of the habit. In fact, the author of Hebrews says, don't, don't forsake coming together as some have gotten into the habit of doing it's just, it's a habit that we get into. It's a habit that we get out of. But there is so much value. In context, the author of Hebrews is talking about we all have gifts. We're all a part of the body of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. And we use that to encourage and, and instruct and, and come together and just make it a joyful place. We can't do that from our couch at home. I get it if you're out there and you really physically can't get out or something comes up. That's why we broadcast. That's why we do all those things because there are times when you can't. But if you're at home or you're in here and you're just more often than not, you know, I just like to have my coffee in bed and watch the service. You're getting the word of God, which is wonderful, and you're joining us, which is great. But there are people here that need you. There are people here that need, we need each other as a part of the body. We have plenty of space for you. There, we're not going to run out of space, um, but we need you here. You're a part of the body of Christ. You're a part of the body at this church, and we need you. We need you here. So please consider that. Let's get back in the habit. We're doing cookouts. We're planning cookouts. We are planning to do classes again. All the things are going back to normal but we need bodies. We need you here. It's not about just filling a seat. It's about a presence. It's about a presence of the body of Christ being here together. So please, come on out and join us. I'm not normally that forward with it, uh, and I know some of my pastor friends are, and I talk to them, and they're like, yeah, we're full. Our sanctuary's full because they're direct. Church, I'm being direct. I need you here. I need you to come and be a part of the body. Thank you. All right. The other thing, just really quickly, and it's, it's, it's a praise report, but also a little bit of encouragement. You may know, or maybe you don't know, that our keyboard is on the fritz. This one we stole from the youth room, and, and we're blessed to be able to have a backup. But we put out there that we are in the process of trying to raise funds to buy a new keyboard. Well, we've done that because we've had enough verbal commitments from people to move forward on that. So the keyboard's ordered ought to be here hopefully next week, and, and we can enjoy that, and that's wonderful. If you're one of those people who have committed verbally and said, I'm going to give to that project, I want to encourage you to take that next step and do it. Actually, go on. The easiest way to do it is whatever giving platform you use electronically, you can go on in the Donate button or the Give tab. There's a little drop-down, and the drop-down will say Worship equipment upgrade, or I forget how it's worded, but worship equipment upgrade. You'll know it, 
put it in there. That way we know that it's gone to that. If you're here in-house and you write a check, you can just put it in the memo, and we'll get that, and we'll just know. Okay, so I don't want to hit that anymore, but it's time to move and actually take that next step. So do that. All right, so let's set all that aside. Welcome again to everybody. Glad that you're here. We are continuing in our series, Blameless, a study in the life of Job. We have hit in our study a a tipping point. This week's message is kind of the transition from this back and forth with Job's friends into this new season kind of that Job's going into. And this really, church, this is when I think it gets good. I think it's been great all up to this point. The things that we can take away are so much different than maybe you would have thought. It, you know, Job is a book about pain and suffering and perseverance and all this kind of thing, which, which it is, but it's also foundational to our ability to truly trust in God. When we see all the things going on in the world, more specifically things that we don't understand, and who here can really say they understand anything in its entirety? I don't know that we can. There are some things that we can see from our perspective. We can see how it affects us today, our day. But we don't see the big picture. We can't. So we have to come to this place where we can trust in God. Because if not, then we just are in turmoil all the time. Thinking, how are we going to figure out? How am I going to navigate my life And better yet, how am I going to navigate my life and the things that come my way in a way that glorifies God? Instead of just jumping in the line with the whole world and I'm just going to act and say and do the things that the people around me do, how do we face life in general, more specifically today, how do we face those things in a way that gives God the glory, in a way that makes people go, how can you be so calm in a time like this? And then we have the opportunity to explain to them how we can be so calm in a time like this. So, you know, the book of Job raises more questions than it answers. Um, You know, just questions like, how can God even allow all these bad things to happen? Such a question that so many people have, and it crops up in, in my spirit from time to time. How can God let things go so astray? And the book doesn't necessarily answer all those questions, but it gives us a lot to think about. And we can look at it differently. We can use use the idea that God will take anything. We're promised he'll take anything and use it for our good. But what does that really mean? That means if we allow him to and we seek him first, he will show us how to navigate the things that come our way in life, the good, the bad, the in-between, all those things. He'll use for our good, and better yet, for the good of the kingdom and for his glory, if we let him. So when we see things like like the statement from James, in the book of James, James 1-2, I want to just show it to you here real quick. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Yay, consider it joy. I don't know about you, but that's hard. That's hard. How do we reconcile that where we're told to consider trials joy with the fact that trials hurt sometimes? Trials sometimes hurt our heart. They hurt our our spirit. They physically hurt. How do we reconcile that? And I think we just have to know and trust that God uses these trials in our lives to elevate us sometimes to this place where we wouldn't go on our own. If 
we keep our heart focused on him and we don't give the enemy ammunition to work with. That's, that's one thing. The devil is poised right now to watch how Christians react. And what he wants to do is take every Christian that doesn't react so well to the things that are happening in the world and highlight that to somebody who's trying to understand what Christianity is all about. And that person will say, okay, I see my non-Christian friends and they're freaking out and they're posting mean things and they're being unkind and they're fearful and they're all of these things and they're opinionated and they're prideful. Okay, but then this Christian person who says they're different is doing the same thing. And the enemy's more than happy to highlight that in their heart and say, yeah, why, why do you need something else to do on a Sunday when they're both living the same way? We need to understand that. And that's the focus, I think, of books like this, that we persevere and we do it in a godly way that gives glory to God. And it's not about God just saying, I need more glory. It's about that glory that we give to God that is attractive and it's magnetic. And then people who don't know him say, I need to know him, especially in a time of storm. I need something that's true and that was true a thousand years ago and it's going to be true tomorrow and it doesn't change with the wind or the tides or the fashion or, the, or whatever of the day. It doesn't change. It's true and it's always been true and I can stand on that. The world is desperate for that and we want to be that rock for them. The body of Christ needs to reflect that to the world and that's something we struggle with. That's why we study things like the book of Job. So let's get in. I'll do just a quick recap of last week. Last week we saw Job's faith Job's been beaten up and battered and back and forth. He probably feels like a beach ball with his friends, like, I'm done with him, your turn. And he probably feels like that. But we just see this giant resurgence of faith in Job's heart. He, he doesn't understand his situation any better now than he did at the beginning or halfway through. And, but he realizes he may never understand. Better yet, he doesn't have to understand. Because he trusts in God. And his, his relief, kind of his inner peace, not, only, not just his peace and like, I'm just going to sit down and take it, but a, a steadfast resolve. It comes from the idea of knowing I may never understand and I'm okay with that. And he says this, this, this beautiful statement here, Job 23.10. Again, this is from last week, just a quick review. Job says, but he knows the way I take. When he has put me to the test, I will come out as gold. That's just a quick statement, but there is so much in that one statement. All of these ideas. Number one, God knows what he's doing. God knows what I'm doing. He's not oblivious to the things that are going on in my life. He knows. And more so, he's testing me. And there will be an end. Like any test, there's an end to the test. Who feels that sigh of relief when the test is over and you put down your pencil, right? Done or not, you're relieved. Job's saying, there will be an end to the testing. And here's the beautiful part. When it's over, when the test is over, he will be better off for it. And he realizes that in the midst of his suffering. He's no better off today than he was 
weeks or months or however long this has been going on ago as, as the boils and the sores and the pain and the itching and all these things, not to mention even the losses that he's had. He's no more comfortable today physically, but he just knows. He knows there's going to be an end, and God is using this, and I trust God. It's this idea that we talked about last week. Job knows that only precious metals are put through the refiner's fire. And when those precious things are put through the refiner's fire, they come out. They come out with something that gives glory to the creator. So Job's now in this place where I think most of us can just pray that we get to. And, and, and we all have times when we're rock solid and then other times when we waver, kind of like Job does. When we can say this, God, I trust you completely and without reservation. Can we really all say that all the time? I don't know that any of us can. When things are going well, certainly it's easy. God, I trust you. This is great. But then when things are going bad and we don't see an end to it or we don't see a way out or we can't figure it out or it just doesn't make sense to us, can we still say that? Because if we can, and that's the message in the book of Job here that we're going to talk about today, if we can, the reward for that is going to be peace. No matter the trial that you face, it's going to be peace. And the result of that peace in our lives will be a reflection of who Jesus is. And a reflection of Jesus in us that rather than to give ammunition to the devil and his purposes, gives glory to God and the purposes of his kingdom. That's where I want to be. So this week, as we go in, we're going to do three chapters this week. Okay, so I hope your, your, pen, I hope your pen is ready and I hope your pencil's all good. If you're out there online or even in here and you're looking for notes, we do notes on version. Pastor Gabe talks about it from time to time. But if you go to version, you can go down, search for a live event, and actually pull up our notes. It's got the bullet points of the scriptures and things uh, to help you follow along. Um, but we're going to get into it. Three chapters. Bear with me. They all kind of go together. And I'm going to try and make sense of this uh, as we go through. So here we are. This week, this is the last speech by any of Job's friends. Okay, we've seen Eliphaz, we've seen Bildan, and we've seen Zophar, and they've gone through this like cycle continuously. This is the last one. This is by a guy named Bildad, and Zophar, the third of the friends, kind of the youngest of the three friends, he's not even going to take his third shot. He's kind of seeing how things are going, and he's like, I got nothing to add. I kind of wish that Bildad would have said the same thing by now, because what he talks about isn't really, it's not different. It's not helpful. He's just kind of rehashing the same old ideas. They're running out of energy. They're running out of new ideas. They're seeing that Job is not coming around to their point of view. So, and again, this is kind of a transition point to the rest of the book. I'm going to read, so we're going to start with Job 25. I'm going to read the whole chapter 25 to you, okay? It, it's, it's six verses. We can, we can do it. Job 25, 1 and 2. Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, Dominion and awe belong to him who makes peace in his heights. Okay, he's just reaffirming how great God is. One thing I want to point out here, the word peace, which is not up there, but if it were, the word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. We've heard, we've heard the word shalom used a lot, but what it really means, it's, it's an idea of completeness of welfare, of peace, of just an overall 
completeness of everything. Some translations use the word harmony or order. It's all the same thing. But he's talking about this idea of just complete peace and order. And they belong to God. Job 25, verses 3 through 5 say, Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? How then can mankind be righteous with God? Or how can anyone who is born of a woman be pure? Meaning any human being. If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight. He's saying, God God is so incredibly powerful. He's got all the troops he needs. There's no number to it. Even the moon has nothing on God. The stars even aren't pure in his sight. God is so good and so pure. And Job's going, I know I agree. I agree all along. So he's not, again, Bildad's not wrong in the things he says. But then he finishes with this super encouraging thought. Job 25, 6. How much less man, that maggot, and son of man, that worm? Hey, thanks, Bildad, for the encouragement. So I'm a maggot and I'm a worm now. Okay. But in reality, human beings, Job and Bildad and all his buddies, everybody included, we're nothing in God's sight. We are really, we are nothing to him, and yet he chooses to love us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need to add us to his number of troops, but he chooses to, and that's part of God's just infinite mercy and love for us. But I think after that statement, I can just picture Job sitting there listening to Bildad as he goes through. God is great. God is powerful. God is amazing. God is incredible, all this. But, but if God is that good, we're just maggots and worms. And I could see Job just going like, all right, I've had it. I've had it, which might explain why this chapter is only those six verses. Job's like, I'm done with you. It's just a weak repeat of all these previous arguments, and Job's kind of had it. But the idea is how could any human hope even to stand in God's holy perfection, stand in the presence of God? How can anybody hope to do that? And without knowing it, Without being intentional about it, I think, Bildad has just hit the nail on the head in the need for Jesus. How could any of us hope to stand in the presence of God's perfection? At that time, there was no hope of that. But now we've been reconciled through Christ, and so we have that. But Bildad didn't know that. But it's just one of those little glimpses that lets us know, yeah, that's why it's important. That's why Jesus was such a gift to us. So as we go into the next chapters, we're going to do chapter 26 and chapter 27. A lot of scholars, just for my Bible nerds out there, kind of argue that these two chapters might not even be Job. Okay, They're attributed to Job, and, and I think most people understand that it's Job, and I believe that it's Job writing these things. But a lot of scholars go back and forth. The reason they go back and forth thinking maybe it's, not that it's made up, but that it's maybe it was part of a speech that one of the friends gave or another friend gave, and, and they're just saying that it was Job saying these things. The reason they do that is because it sounds a lot like things that their friends would say, that Job's friends would say. But I think that proves really how real it is. Job has gotten to this point to where he's like, okay, I know what you're going to say. In fact, I know what you're going to say so much, I'm going to say it back to you. And it's kind of a preemptive. He's just saying it. Now, this is a, 
it's actually really a common debate technique. Any debater, high school debaters or anything out there, maybe out there online, we're going to talk more about this later, but it's a really common debate technique, which is why I think that it's, that it really is Job. So let's get into it. I'll read a lot of it to you, and some of it we'll put on screen. Job 26, verses 1 through 4. Job opens up, says, Then Job responded, What a help you are to the weak. You have saved the arm without strength. What advice you have given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit was expressed through you? He's saying, this is incredible. What a mind-blowing, great information. Who gave you this? This is dripping with sarcasm, and I love Job that he's like this. Now, again, Job's not in the most comfortable place. He's hurt. He's hurting. He's suffering. But he's got the strength to say, hey, that's great. Where'd you get it? The word you, by the way, in there, just a, just a little look at that where he says, you have saved the arm, what advice you have given. It's Hebrew singular. So by that, by a little study, we know that he's talking directly to Bildad. He's just refuting what he said here. But now as we go in, Job, Job kind of takes on, again, the tone of his friends, and he's repeating the same arguments about the greatness of God. And the words are true, Job's not misspeaking. His friends really didn't misspeak. But they're unhelpful in this situation because they're just not specific enough to what he's going through. And, and Job, all this time, you can just see Job sitting there just hoping, give me, something, give me something I can act on. Instead of just quoting a whole bunch of things to me that are true, how does this apply in my life? I kind of try and take that when I'm talking about Scripture here. We teach on Scripture, but then boil it down. How can this change how I walk out of here today? That's what I hope to do. And that's kind of what I think Job was hoping for all along. It just never really happened. Job 26 verses 5 and 6. The departed spirits are made to tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Shoal is naked before him and Abaddon has no covering. Shoal is the place where the dead go in Job's mind. That was historically where I went. And, and Shoal, it wasn't hell, it wasn't heaven, it was, just, it was just where they went. There was really no differentiation in his time. And Abaddon is, is just a, it's a fearful place. It's a place of darkness and terror and uncertainty and monsters live there. And So he's talking about that. He's basically saying, God has no fear of these things that we fear. These things that we uh, that we tremble and shake and, 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 and we're afraid of, God's got no fear of those things. And then he goes on. Now, for those of you who are into apologetics, apologetics is a branch of, of study that, that basically wants to take, in essence, take science and apply it to Scripture and show us how Scripture is divinely inspired. Show us how there are things in Scripture that maybe we question, like, really, did the Red Sea part? But it shows us how those things really could have happened. And the book of Job, by the way, is just packed full of these kinds of facts. If you're, if you're interested in that kind of thing, there's a book. A good friend of mine, Terry Cooper, told me about it. It's by Hugh Ross. It's called Treasures in the Book of Job. I actually went out and bought it and read it. It's amazing, but it talks about all these things and how Job speaks of things just kind of offhand that 
there's no way he could have known. But it proves back that all the way back then, God was giving us little hints about how he made the world. So if you're interested in that, it's Hugh Ross, Treasures in the Book of Job. It's a fun read. But Job talks about here in the next few, next few verses, talks about things that he had no way to know about the moon and the stars and the way things are put together. Let's get into it. Job 26, verse 7. He, meaning God, stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Okay, this was over 4,000 years ago. The word north, by the way, in that context was just used to mean up. Every, everything that's up, right? Not, not to the north of where he is. Everything that's up. And hangs the earth on nothing. Again, the idea of, of the earth just floating in empty space. This was not what the common belief was there. The common belief was that the earth was manufactured basically with these, we'll see in a minute, the pillars of the earth, meaning mountains holding up the sky, and everything was very carefully put together. There was no, there was no concept at that time that the earth was just hanging in space over nothing, and yet Job talks about it like that. 26, uh, Job 26, verse 8, he wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. There he's talking about, about eclipses and about the moon circling the earth and, and going out of sight at times. He's talking about water being held up in the clouds. The common belief there is if it rained, it's because God was sending down the rain. God seemed, or Job seems to have this idea that he knows that the clouds store up that water, tons and tons of water just hanging up in space. That blows my mind even today. But back then, it was not an idea that they would have understood. Job 26.10, he has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. This one verse has been the study, the subject of so much study. So I'm not going to go deeply into it, but that word circle is the Hebrew word coke, and its definition is a circuit or, or a boundary, but it really implies a globe, a round globe. It's echoed the same word in Isaiah 40, 22. He talks about it when he's talking specifically about a round earth. So Job's talking about the idea of water suspended above. He's talking about waters contained within a circular globe, that circular globe hanging in space. As recently as... Yesterday, people thought the world might still be flat. And Job, all those years ago, is, it's a globe hanging in space over nothing. It's this wonderful picture of how God is just revealing things to Job. Job 26.11, the pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. Again, the pillars of heaven was that idea common at the time that the mountains literally were what held up the sky, that somewhere beyond your field of vision were taller mountains that the sky actually rested upon. Same idea, David talks about that in Psalm 104, holds up, talks about the same idea. Job 26, 12, with his power he quieted the sea, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. Rahab was a mythical sea monster, and he's basically saying, God beat the sea monster that everybody that goes out in the ocean is scared to death of Rahab at that time, this giant sea monster. And he's saying, God defeats that with just a thought. That's nothing to God. Job 26, 13, by his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. 
That word breath, just point that out to you really quick, is the same word that's used back in Genesis. It's a Hebrew word. It's pronounced ruach, and it means a violent or a, or a rushing wind, like a powerful wind. Genesis 1-2, where it says, And the earth was formless, and desolate emptiness and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. That Spirit of God is ruach, that same word. So we see how all these things tie in together. Job 26, 14, behold, these are the fringes of his ways and how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? He's basically saying no matter how much we think we know, this is just the tip of what God knows. That's what he means by the fringes of his ways. Like all these things we think we understand are just barely touching the surface. Now we shift into chapter 27, next chapter. After all this talk, Job just kind of goes back to reaffirming his innocence before God, kind of his, his blamelessness. Job 27, 1 and 2. Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right? And the Almighty who has embittered my soul. Essentially, it's just a, he's saying, As God is my witness. Job 27, 3 and 4, For as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. His friends have been trying to convince him, just admit what you've done. But he's like, I can't. I can't just admit what I've done because I'd be making something up and I'm not going to lie about it just to try and get myself off the hook. Job 27, 5 and 6, far be it from me that I should declare you right. He's talking to his friends here. Until I die, I will not give up my integrity. I have kept hold of my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not rebuke any of my days. It's like, I've I've got no question. I, I look back at my life and I don't have a problem in my heart of the way I've lived my life. And I'm not gonna give that up just because you think I should. Now, as kind of this preemptive argument against his pals, Job goes back in, and we've seen this back and forth again and again, where he talks about the wicked people. Job 27, 8 through 10. For what is the hope of the godless when he makes an end of life, when God requires his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Or will he take pleasure in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? break that apart here real quick. Job is saying, when my time comes, I'll have confidence. When he's talking about the godless, it's small g. The godless, when, when, when their life ends, I think he's pointing at his friend Bildad still directly, essentially saying, when your life ends, will you know God and will you be confident? Or will you just call out to him at that point and hope things work out well? He's saying, no, when... when Will you take pleasure in the Almighty? That means, that means dwell in Him. That means have a daily, minute-to-minute relationship with Him, not just when everything hits the fan suddenly. That's not the time to figure out where your relationship with God is. Now, Job now makes this statement, and, and some people have contended that, that this section of Job, and, and I don't necessarily disagree, really is a lot about Job's pridefulness. Job's dancing a fine line here. I don't think he really steps over that line of pridefulness, but he's really close. 
He's really close. It's a delicate line. In fact, we know that he kind of treads a little over that line because God rebukes him for it later. But listen to what he says. Job 27, verse 11. I will instruct you in the power of God. What is the Almighty? I will not conceal. So he's saying, let me tell you about God. I'm not going to hold anything back because I know about God. And he does know all that he can know about God. Job 27, 13. This is the portion of a wicked person from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. He might be pointing a finger in the chest of his buddies here when he says tyrants. Now we know, again, we've seen the back and forth. We know how this is going to go. They've said it many times, different versions of it. Job 27, verses 8 through 10 essentially say this. Though his son, this is what happens to the wicked man or to the tyrant. Though his sons are many, they're destined for the sword. His survivors will be, be, will be buried because of the plague. Their widows will not be able to weep. He lies down rich, but never again. He opens his eyes, and it no longer exists. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A storm steals him away in the night, for it will hurl at him without mercy. He's saying all these things about a wicked man, and yet you could look at that and say, isn't that what happened to you, Job, at the beginning of this story? But he's saying, look, that's, that's tyrants and wicked. That happens to that. And yes, it happened to me, but that's not why. And then finally, the last verse in this, in chapter 27, Job 27, 8 through 10. Oh, no, that's not 8 through 10. It's 23. Sorry. Yep. And that's my mistake. I gave that 8 through 10. It's Job 27, verse 23. People will clap their hands at him and will whistle at him from their places. That's just a, at that time especially, clapping was a sign of, of derision, like of mocking. And he's probably really, really familiar with that because it probably happened to him. Remember, he's sitting on a trash heap outside of town, outside of where he lived. So people would come out and they'd dump their trash on the heap and burn it. And that's where Job has made his home. So people, as they come out and dump their trash, I can imagine after all this time, they're mocking him, they're pointing at him. They're, at the very least, he's a curiosity that they're looking at. He's very familiar with that kind of, a, of an expression. So that's the end. That's the end of these three chapters. So you look at that and go, okay, just more of the same, right? Let's look at it a little bit more deeply and like what, what are we supposed to take away and learn? Because it does kind of seem repetitive and pointless, sort of back and forth, same old arguments. But I think to me, that really points to the authenticity of the dialogue here. Because if you were just writing a book you wouldn't go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth of more of the same things, right? You can just see people like skipping ahead in the book, like when do we get to the, to the next part here? But this is a dialogue, a back and forth with Job and his friends, and I think it makes it authentic because Job's friends absolutely in their minds must win this argument. They have to because if they can't win this argument, they will have absolutely no peace in their lives because they have no capacity to not know. They have no capacity or ability to not understand and still trust God. If they're going to trust in God, they've got to know why these things are happening to Job. 
They have no ability to trust without knowing. This is our takeaway. So this tactic, this thing that they're doing, this back and forth, and especially what we see Job doing when he repeats it back to them, is, is a debate tactic. It's a very common debate tactic. And you don't have to be a part of a debate club in high school to see these things going back and forth in our society today. Let me show you. This, this specifically what he's doing, what Job is doing in response to what his friends are doing is, again, it, it's, it's carefully, I think, calculated. What his friends are doing, it's called argument by verbosity, okay, and long term. It's also nickname, it's called a gish gallop. And if you're a debate nerd, you might have heard of that term out there. But what it is, it's named for a guy named Dwayne Gish, and Dwayne Gish actually happened to be a creationist, a Christian creationist, and he would go to these debates, and he would try and argue how we know that the earth is a young earth versus an older earth, and how it was created just as the Bible says, and so he would go into these debates, and he would blow people away in these debates, but he did it with a specific technique, and his technique was just to overwhelm his opponent with so many different facts and things. And the facts really didn't even necessarily have to connect or make sense. He would just batter them with facts and, and overwhelm them. So it involves this with as many arguments as possible, sometimes with no regard for accuracy, validity, or relevance. That's how it's kind of morphed. But again, it's named after him, um, and I happen to agree with the things that he would argue. But the point of it is, and here's, here's kind of an example of how this looks. Now listen to the things that you hear in the news or social media or our cancel culture today. And listen to if some of these arguments don't, or these tactics don't sound like what you see. Number one, so I've got seven different um, examples of, of these gish gallop kind of arguments. Number one, generalized claims that are difficult to apply to the argument. Okay, they may not be wrong, but they're just so general. How do they apply to what's going on? Number two, anecdotal statements with little or no value. Well, I know a friend who this and that happened to them. Number three, unintentional or intentional misrepresentation of facts. You can take a fact and make it say just about whatever you want. Number four, truthful statements that are either irrelevant to the discussion or don't provide meaningful evidence. Number five, refuting statements that no one has actually made. Like, I'm going to argue your point. Even though you didn't even make that point, I'm going to argue it. That just confuses people, and they get overwhelmed. Number six, New versions of previous statements that are only slightly modified. So I'm just going to take what they said, and I'm just going to repeat it, but I'm going to change it. Maybe even what I said, just restate it a different way. One of my favorite argument techniques that Gabe can tell you about. Let me restate my point as many ways as possible until I eventually wear you down. And you <laughs> Just being honest. Number seven. Statements supported by previous statements made. So you make a statement saying, as we all know, this is happening. May or may not be true. And then later on, I'll go back and go, remember, we decided that as we all know, this is true. 
So these are the tactics that, they're, that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are all using, and then Job goes back. That's why we see this back and forth, and here Job's basically repeating their ideas back to him. Because the best way to argue that kind of an attack is another debate term, and it's called the steel man technique. Anybody ever heard of that? What you do is basically you repeat and agree with the best parts of your opponent's argument, those at least that are truthful and that you can agree with, and then you engage with it. Okay, the benefits of doing that are, number one, you'll have a better chance of persuading the other person. I tell you all this, by the way, because you will meet people in life every single day who want to argue the authenticity of the Bible, of, of the things that it says and happens. And the best way is not just to say, you're wrong and I'm right. So some of these techniques we can apply towards helping to spread the gospel so number one, again, you'll have a better chance of persuading the other party if you show them, number one, I've heard you. I hear the things you're saying. I'm taking them seriously, and I don't disagree with all of them. There are some things that we need to 100% disagree with, let me be clear. But we need to use discernment. But secondly, and maybe the most importantly aspect of this, is that it causes you to have to test your own beliefs. You can't argue something if you don't understand what you think, or at least you shouldn't. Let me put it that way. It causes you to think about and test your assumptions and your beliefs. And if you can't respond to the strongest argument of the other side with an argument of your own, you probably are going to lose that debate. And when we're talking about Christianity and the things that the Bible teaches, the stakes are high. We need to be careful. Job here, though, going back to Job, he's not afraid to deal with the facts. He's not afraid to agree with the facts as they're being told to him. The problem that he's arguing is the lack of truth contained in those facts. The facts, yes, it's, a, it's an actual fact, but the truth contained is what's lacking. So here we get to, in the last minutes, as I wrap this up, the hardest part of this message. And it applies to our everyday lives, the same as it did 4,000 years ago, over 4,000 years ago, when Job was written. So are you ready for this? And it goes back to a question I asked at the very beginning. Can you trust in God, despite the fact that most of our lives, most of our everyday happens without us having any idea why or how it happens? Can you be okay with that? Can you truly say, I don't know how or why this happens, but I'm okay with that? That's a bigger question than really on the surface it seems because we can strive to know the facts. We can see what happens around us in our little sphere. We can know exactly how it impacts us, at least from our perspective. But can we possibly see any situation, any news story, anything that anybody does anywhere the same way God sees it? Can we see it from all the different angles? And I'm not just talking angles. I'm talking time and space and the kind of perspective that only God knows. Can we see the end result, maybe years, maybe generations down the road of things that happen today? Can we see things from God's perspective? And Scripture tells us clearly 
we can't. We can't know. A couple scriptures that I just pulled out really quick. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. No, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why does it say don't lean on your own understanding? Because we can't possibly understand anything beyond this tiny little sliver of how it applies to me right now today. And if we're lucky, we have a full picture of even that. But we can't possibly see how it applies all over the world. So our need to make sense of everything, it's just human nature. We want to make sense of things. And when we get in this place where we have to make sense before we can believe it, before we can trust it, before we can have faith, it's got to make sense somehow. If we're in that place, it takes us out of this place of full reliance on God, of full faith on God. And it places us right alongside those in the world who will only believe what they can see, touch, feel, and prove and maybe replicate in a lab somehow. It takes us out of a place of faith, and it puts us right alongside of everyone else. And if that's our mindset, we are no different than those who know Jesus and those who don't. There's no difference in that case. But understanding God's sovereignty really would have no meaning if we could replicate what he does. If we could understand every aspect of what he does and what he thinks and how he does it, would we, would that give glory to God? Does our human nature and our need to understand give glory to God? And again, better, better question yet, would it be to God's glory if we could understand? Would God be worthy of glory and praise and adoration and everything if we could say, I see how he did that. I could probably do that. I think our ability to have peace, even when or especially when we don't understand, is what gives him glory. What's the worst case if we're wrong? Think about that. What's the worst case? If we're wrong about this, what if we choose to acknowledge that there are things in life we can never understand? What if we accept that there are many things in our life that we can't control? That's mind-blowing to some people. What if we choose to believe that there is someone infinitely better equipped to guide our lives, both individually and corporately throughout the world, than we are? what if that someone loves us enough to send his only son to pay the price for the times when we try and fail to do it on our own? What if, here's the kicker, I, I think, what if we choose to believe all of this with all of our heart and the result in our lives is the ability to face every trial that we face with peace? What if that's the worst case scenario? I go through life facing trials with peace. Now, the world at large, 
specifically I'm talking about those who don't know Jesus, might call that willful ignorance. You're just choosing to bury your head in the sand and just pretend. In fact, it's been said the essence of science is doubt. I choose, though, instead to call it faith. And I hope that's where you are. Because through our faith, through our faith, especially when we don't understand, that's how we glorify God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much that you, that you love us. That despite our imperfections and who we are and, and who we aren't, you love us enough to give your son for us, to reconcile the mistakes that we make, the sin in our lives, to reconcile those things, to cover those things so that we can stand before you, so that we can know you. And Father, I pray that everything we do, we do with an awareness that we are a reflection of you. And so I pray then further that we do everything for your glory that we take those thoughts captive, not just to make us feel better, but so that we can reflect you to a world that desperately needs to know who you are in a way that gives the enemy no ammunition for twisting it and for doing damage to your kingdom. Father, let us, let us be instruments that you use in this world to glorify yourself. And you've done that through your son, Jesus. You brought him to reconcile us so that we may give you glory, so that others may know you. Father, help us to stay in that place. Help us to trust even when we don't understand. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together now. If you're out there online, grab whatever you have. If you're here in-house and forgot to grab them on the way in, there on that back table back there. Let's just do it simply. As in my prayer, I just thought, Lord, you love us enough to send your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us, to reconcile us for all the mistakes that we have made, will make in the future, and the mistakes we'll make today so that we can stand in your presence and partaking in the body by doing that, we align with that sacrifice of Christ. The blood of Christ. Jesus said it's the blood of the new covenant, but what does that mean? In Job's time, they didn't, have, they didn't even have the old covenant yet. And so they had to offer sacrifice to pay for their sins. And it's the blood of the lamb, the blood of the sacrificial animals that would cover that and that would pay that price and so when we take the the wine or the juice or whatever it is that we take it symbolizes the new covenant of Christ where he and he alone paid the ultimate price for us Lord we thank you and we praise you this day and every day in Jesus name amen thank you guys